Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, August 15th, 2018 edition of our little weather get-together. This is show number 244. And tonight we have with us Russ Shoemaker. He is the Associate Professor at Colorado State University and also the climatologist for the state of Colorado. Uh, so we're happy to have Russ on with us tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, severe weather. Uh, we're going to be talking about the ratios and MCS, MCV systems, and kind of how we can classify uh, what uh, each of those uh, definitions are. I know uh, the uh, the national media likes to, to use the duratio word a little bit maybe out of context. So tonight, hopefully we can clarify the meaning of that and uh, kind of let you know what uh, a duratio is and what these others are. Um, as uh, we uh, continue the show tonight. But we are um, broadcasting live right now on Periscope and Facebook Live, also our YouTube page. So we'd love to have some interaction from you. You can do that pretty easily with us. Um, there's a comment feature on both the uh, Periscope and Facebook Live and the, fa and the uh, YouTube page. So if you have any questions throughout the show, please feel free to uh, send them our way. We'd love to answer them. And uh, we'll uh, also, towards the end of the show, let you... Uh, uh, learn how you can uh, get in touch with our guest tonight. Russ will let him uh, share his information and maybe how you can follow along with what he is doing uh, in the uh, meteorological world. So uh, that is our live broadcast tonight. And as always, we will uh, tune the uh, audio around and we'll let you uh, be able to download the podcast version in the next day or so. So that is the uh, kind of the housekeeping rules. Let's go around quickly to our panel and uh, bring in everyone. We'll start over in the uh, Memphis, Tennessee area. Eric, I know for us here in the Southeast, it's uh, kind of been a, a dry period. We've not had many storms. It's been a little bit less humid, but the heat's still sticking around. How's things out in the, uh, the Mid-South? Very similar, Scotty. Uh, we've had actually pretty high pops on several days over the last week and nothing really has materialized. And so uh, we're entering that phase again for the next few days with uh, Kind of a upper low to our west moving this direction. We're hoping to get some rain out of it, but it has been pretty dry. Um, the heat's back, and uh, people are starting to complain again. So I know it must be summer once again here in Memphis. We did have a, a kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon today. Um, the uh, health department here and uh, meteorologist here in Shelby County, where we're located, uh, put out a uh, air quality alert for Saharan dust. Uh, we had uh, particulate matter that uh, was basically of code orange level today, um, and the origins of that was uh, Saharan dust that moved around the high-pressure system in the southeast and came up of our area. And uh, the sunrise this morning was a little hazy, a little yellow, and uh, so kind of looked like uh, a little, little bit different than uh, what we usually get here. But um, for those who deal with uh, asthma and those kind of things, it's certainly no laughing matter. So that should move out of here. We'll get some rain. And that'll help clear things out a little bit. Now, Eric, are you guys getting any of the haze from the uh, smoke from Ridgeland Fire across over your area as well? We got real close the last couple of days. There was a, a jet streak that was kind of went down over um, Kentucky, southeast, and the middle Tennessee. Could see it real well on satellite. It, it missed the Memphis metro area, but yeah, it uh, it was it was pretty close. It would have it would have another you know fifty hundred miles to the southwest, and it would have been right over us too. So, a couple of different interesting phenomena in the mid south the last few days. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, we normally talk about the Saharan dust with uh, tropical development, but it's interesting that uh, it's kind of affecting you guys, which is should really be no surprise to us, Eric, because last year's tropical season seemed like everything came through Memphis anyway. So right. we'll bring the dust there too. 
<laughs> when there's no storms, we get the cause for having no storms, and that's the dust. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, let's go over to, uh, let's bring in Christopher Jackson, who is in the Columbia, South Carolina area tonight. Chris, how's things going there in the uh, Columbia area? Uh, much the same, just like what Eric's having over in Memphis. Uh, you know, a couple of days we kind of dried out from uh, the past a couple of weeks. It seemed like it rained every day. Uh, been getting pretty warm again. I think I, 94 today at, at uh, Metro at the airport. That's what the National Weather Service got. And, uh, you know, a lot of humidity is back. But uh, with the mid-level capping in place, just uh, no storms been able to develop. And looking like it's going to stay that way for at least the next couple of days. I know, I know, Chris, with you being a storm lover, you probably miss the storms. But covering-wise, it's, it's kind of <laughs> nice to have a break. Oh, absolutely. It's uh it's just weird to look up and just see bluebird skies in like August. It's like, come on, man, really? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that report, Chris. Let's go down to Charleston, South Carolina. We'll bring in Jared Smith. Jared, how's uh things down there in the Charleston area? Well, it's been soggy, very soggy. And then we got uh, something that masquerades as a break and that it rains every other day versus every day. Um, but there's still, you know, still like a, just a, a, just a powder keg of moisture, um, you know, significant flooding uh, yesterday in the Somerville area. It's a place that you don't normally associate with flooding down here. You usually think about downtown. You usually think about, you know, rain at high tide. It's all over. Uh, but that is not the case. Uh, that's not been really a, a major issue over the last couple days. Um, but... Uh, you know, so just uh, on and off rain is August in Charleston. We get those kinds of issues. We've had a little bit of haze here ourselves. We've had some of the uh, smoke from the fires up in Canada and, um, and California route its way down a little dip in the jet stream and uh, has made for some hazy sunrises and uh, some yellow moons down here as well. So um, some pretty fascinating uh, true color imagery uh, on ghost 16. I don't have it punched up, but um it's it's out there maybe we'll share that in a tweet of the week later later tonight yeah thank you for that jared and uh i will report for james who is not here tonight um for the north carolina area much of the same of what everyone else been talking about we have been on the drier side um and like uh, uh eric was talking about and jared you know we have had those hazy conditions with the uh, jet stream set up just right some of that uh, wildfire smoke from canada has made its way here into the carolinas but it looks like going to start to uh, kind of turn the uh, page here and we're going to get a lot more moisture building into the area uh, with an approaching cold front over the weekend and that's going to trigger some thunderstorms and possibly some heavy rain so uh, we had a little reprieve from the uh, the storms and it looks like we're going to go back into those as we head towards the weekend so that's kind of a recap of what's going on in North Carolina I now want to turn it over to Shay Gibson and uh Jay, uh, the tropics, it looks like we have one storm that has formed, but it's way, way up into the northern Atlantic. Yes, that's right, Scotty. So we have uh, subtropical storm uh, Ernesto, which uh, formed this morning. It was uh, subtropical. I'm sorry. Uh, it was tropical depression number five, uh, and it quickly transitioned to subtropical storm. So uh, this area of the Atlantic is still showing fairly warm sea surface temperatures. You can see here. Uh, right now, our data in the data scope is, is out on the sea surface temperatures, but this, this sort of uh, uh, regional map here or, or northern hemisphere, you can see the area of the Atlantic where these warm plumes are coming out across from the Gulf Stream. And so these we've had two storms that have formed over this area uh, briefly. So as soon as this moves over cooler water, we do suspect that it will uh, dissipate uh, rather quickly. And uh, here's its track heading off to Ireland. Maybe they'll get a little something from this storm eventually in time. but. It won't be tropical uh, by any means. 
Uh, if we go back down here, we have another tropical wave that we are watching. This one has a 10% chance next 48 hours, 20% chance the next five days. It, it is in a rather conducive environment right now. There isn't a whole lot of Saharan dust aloft mixing in with this system. And the tropical wave does look rather impressive. In fact, if we look at look at it on um, on IR satellite loop, we can see it approaching sort of heading towards the Leeward Islands right now. And this tropical wave is starting to have more of a vertical trough axis that is looking a little bit more impressive in time. So the NHC went ahead and, and circled this. I was just talking about before the show, and then I clicked on the NHC update, and there it was, so the 1020. Uh, but if we take a closer look, we can see the convection is it's starting to sort of get a little bit organized. There's no surface circulation right now, and that's what we look for in order to define a tropical depression or any, any kind of uh, development towards a tropical cyclone. However, there is a lot of upper shear of the Caribbean right now, so it doesn't look like it is favored to last, even if it does form into something. It even says it here um, on the NHC that upper-level winds are expected to become less conducive for any significant development to occur when the system moves over the Eastern Caribbean Sea. So that's kind of it right now for the tropics. Um, you know, we're starting to get into that time of the year where uh, we are heading towards the, the peak of the season. In fact, I'll go ahead and pull this up. Just a constant reminder that we are not over. Uh, you know, we're not past this peak time of September 10th. So between now and then, we could still see some activity, the intertropical convergence zone. This is the time when it starts to lift a little bit further north and we get into our Cape Verde season. Uh, so we'll have to watch and see what the, the cooler sea surface temperatures out there are going to do, or I should say cooler than normal. They're not really that cool. Uh, a lot of people are sort of, um, I wouldn't say misled, but they may think that there's this cool body of water out there that nothing's going to develop. And that's not true. The waters are warm. They're just a little bit cooler than normal. Uh, we'll have to continue to watch the intertropical convergence zone for any waves coming across and also near the continental United States for any homegrown systems to develop, especially with our uh, cold fronts dropping into the southeast region one after the other and fizzling away. So uh, other than that, we're, we're doing pretty well in the tropics, nothing uh, to con be concerned about right now. So back to you, Scotty. Thank you, Shay. And I believe this came out after our show last week, but Noah uh, kind of gave an update uh, about the tropical season and they kind of are in line with everyone else. Am I correct? Yeah, they dropped their 60% chance to have below average season and uh, they're only expecting one major hurricane. So, uh, you know, well, Colorado states, they dropped theirs, Noah dropped theirs uh, down uh, as far as activity goes. But that doesn't mean we won't see one. And it only takes one. That's the big hashtag that you got to remember. It only takes one because if that one major hurricane develops and hits the United States, then, hey, you know, we're, we've had a, another uh, upset. Last year was a, was a sore reminder of, of how you should just always remain prepared for any kind of hurricane or tropical system that makes landfall. Uh, have your evacuation plan in place and have your hurricane kit. All right. Thank you for that report, Shay. We always appreciate uh, getting into uh, the tropics and diving into that. Let's uh, bring in our guest now. We have uh, Mr. Rush Shoemaker on, uh, associate professor at Colorado State University and also the climatologist for the state of Colorado. And maybe a little bit more fun fact, he is a Jeopardy winner. So, uh, Russ, welcome to the show. Uh, we appreciate you joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Well, uh, since you are a first-time guest, we always uh, start off with this question with, with our first-timers is uh, kind of give us your backstory. Maybe uh, how, how the weather bug bit you, uh, what got you interested into it, and kind of your journey from, uh, 
from your uh, start of love of weather to what you're doing today. Yeah. So the, you know, I think probably like all of us, there were, you know, moments in our childhood or whatever that, that we got, you know, got us interested in the weather. And one that always sticks out for me is, uh, uh, so I grew up in, in Minnesota in the Twin Cities area, and there's a, a pretty famous uh, tornado video of uh, this tornado that formed that was filmed by a news helicopter in 1986 in uh, the Twin Cities area there. And you can people can look it up on YouTube if you're it's still a, still one of the best tornado videos that there is, I think. Um, but that was, you know, in the days when there was only three channels on TV and you watch the the local news every night and, and that was live, live broadcast. They had the news helicopter, I think was just out there, you know, doing, doing the normal traffic or whatever. And then this tornado develops and, uh, and, and just fascinating dynamics of the, the flow and the tornado week dissipating and forming again and, and going over water for a little while, like sucking up the water. So it's a, it's a pretty fascinating video still to watch um, to this day. And so that was one of the, that along with, you know, this, these were the early days of the, of the weather channel and, and we had cable at my house. And so we watched the weather, you know, I watched the weather channel a lot and local on the eights and everything else. And, and so that kind of, you know, got me all interested in it. And then I went, um, when I went to college, I went to, I kind of decided I want to study meteorology. I went to Valparaiso University in Indiana and studied meteorology there. And then came here to Colorado for, for graduate school at Colorado State. Um, so I came here and, and some PhD here. And then, um, I went to NCAR just down the road in Boulder for a little bit. And then I got my first job at Texas A&M University. So I was there, um, uh, I guess, an honorary Aggie for, for a couple of years for working there. And then a position opened up back here at, at CSU where, where I had gone to school and uh, couldn't, couldn't turn down the opportunity to come back to Colorado. And so I've been here on the faculty since 2011 and then took over as the kind of added on the state climatologist role about a year, almost a year ago. So, <clears throat> excuse me, for our followers who um, may not know, and, and then we'll get into our topic tonight, but uh, what does a climatologist do? What is your, uh, what is your responsibilities there? Yeah, so it actually depend. It, it varies a bit from state to state. The program used to, it used to be like a federal program back until the 70s, um, where, you know, it was like a sort of like a branch of the weather service, I think, but then they, they farmed it out to the states. And so it's a little different in each state in quite a few states. It's at the, the land grant ag university. And, and so that's how we are here and, and Texas and, and, you know, quite a few of the other states, um, but some states it's a state government position. Um, some states it's more of an extension position. Um, so, but, but here it's, you know, my, my predecessor, uh, was Nolan Duskin, who was not a, not a professor, but, but worked here at CSU for, for about 40 years and, and he's retired now, but still is, is active in, in the community. And so a lot of what we do, um, is is honest you know so my my background is in studying floods and storms and things like that but a lot of what we do in in the office actually is is monitoring drought and and sort of statewide conditions with respect to that and and providing information for the u.s drought monitor um we do we we have a a 
sort of burgeoning state mesonet that that our office uh, operates. So it, it's a it's mainly a, an agricultural weather network, but we're trying to kind of build it up into more you know uh, you know wider reach so that it, that it is is you know more of a a mesonet in line with what some other states have. Um, of course, we you know we meet with and present to stakeholders all across the state. Um, you know, some in the state government and 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 uh, you know water groups, agriculture groups, and so forth. So we do a lot of that. And then the the one other sort of unique thing in our office that originated here in Fort Collins is the Cocoraz network that probably a lot of people are familiar with the citizen science rain gauge network. You put a rain gauge in your backyard and, and take those measurements every day and send them in. And so that was invented or founded here after a big flood that we had in Fort Collins seven. And so Nolan, um, who was a state climatologist before me, realized we had very little rain data. And, and this was one of those storms where the west side of town had 10 or 12 inches of rain and the east side of town had like less than an inch and, and there was just no measurements. And so, um, so he realized, well, people can put these little gauges in their backyard and we can get pretty good measurements. And so it started here in Colorado and is now nationwide and, and, and even internationally a little bit with Canada and the Bahamas. Um, and so, um, so it's kind of a fun new thing to be able to, to be involved with that network as well and, and see how, how valuable that, that data can be. That's really cool. And Shade, correct me if I'm wrong, but we had Nolan on a few years ago, didn't we? Talking about Kokoraz. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we sure did. In fact, yeah. um, yeah, that was great. I mean, like we learned, we learned a lot from him. That was great. That was a good show. It yeah. And as, you know, as a, as a rainfall researcher myself kind of coming into this, uh, you know, you, you've been and now getting kind of ingrained in the in the network here. Um, you know, you probably don't realize that those those plastic gauges that people are reading every day are that's that in many ways is sort of the gold standard of rainfall measurements. Um, we need automated stations too, of course, because because to get the high, you know, the time resolution and 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 everything else. But um, you know, having something that someone goes and looks at every day is often the most accurate measurement. I've got one in my backyard. All right, every day. Excellent. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> <clears throat> well, Russ, um, one thing that we wanted to bring you on, and Dr. Philip Klotzbach actually recommended you for this yeah. topic. So. Uh, we are very happy to uh, to get his recommendation and reach out to you. Uh, we want to talk about severe weather, and I know uh, that's one thing that you, you've studied a lot of, it, and the different severe weather complexes. Uh, you know, occasionally uh, the general public, maybe those who have a little bit of interest in weather, may have heard the terms deratio or MCS or uh, MCV systems. And, and so tonight that's what we're wanting to kind of uh, talk about is those different complexes, so maybe the next time that – that you guys who are listening tonight or watching tonight, maybe you'll have a better understanding of, of what um, us meteorologists are talking about. And I guess the first one, the big elephant in the room, is a deratio. Uh, it seems like uh, every uh, media outlet, uh, every uh, different weather um, outlet per se, has a different definition of maybe what a deratio is. So uh, let's start there and give us an idea of, maybe what the correct term of a deratio is and what kind of a weather, what kind of weather we expect with this. Yeah. So, so the, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to bring, well, I'll see if I can get my uh, screen sharing to work here, but I'll bring up this, uh, um, 
let's see, it's gonna work. Uh, share, there we go. Um, this, can you guys see this? Uh, it's a bunch of text, so does it show up? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. So this, this is kind of the, the interesting backstory of this, this, uh, this phrase that, that, that I wasn't even that aware of. Uh, I knew it was an old term, but um, the, the kind of history of it was that this, this researcher in Iowa um, was, was studying these, the wind damage that would often happen in Iowa, but he realized that, that tornadoes were getting a lot of attention at this time in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, but he didn't think they were produced by tornadoes. It looked like it was coming from from straight line winds, and so he he kind of came up with the this this alternate you know Spanish term to tornado, which was you know has Spanish origin, and and so he he used the the term derecho for for straight ahead um, or direct, and and so then that kind of entered the meteorological literature in the in, in 1888. Um, so it, so it's a very very old. Uh, terminology as far as uh, as far as meteorology goes, but then um, it, it 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 sort of made a its first resurgence back in the in the eight nineteen eighties um, from this paper by by Bob Johns, who was a, a longtime forecaster at the Storm Prediction Center, um, and and basically it's to describe uh, long lasting sort. Uh, you know, swaths of wind damage that cover large areas. And so they came up with, in their analysis, came up with this, this sort of very, you know, specific definition that's shown here, which has been debated a lot in the meantime. And, and we can come back to that in a minute, but it, but it essentially what it tries to describe is, is a long, la you know, it's not just a, a, a strong winds from a single thunderstorm. It's a, a large complex and organized complex that at lasts for many hours and produces severe wind, very, very strong wind along its entire, entire path. So some of these things that you see in this definition, um, you know, you have, you have to have uh, concentrated severe gusts that, you know, that, that last for over or that stretch over 400 kilometers or 250 miles. Um, it has to be non-random, so basically kind of a, a swath or a series of swaths. Um, and there have to also be reports with, with significant damage. So as sort of the SPC definition goes of, of uh, 65 knots or greater, or if you, there's a damage survey, then, then F1 or EF1 or greater damage, and then it, it has to kind of persist for this whole time. So this is sort of the the you know sciency definition of the of of this this phrase, which I think was primarily only used among meteorologists, uh, you know, for the most part, until um, until a couple big events that happened in the in the early two thousands. Um, one was a, a system in Missouri in in two thousand nine. Um, where the, the, the sort of became phrased the, the super derecho um, because it, it, it kind of spun, even though it looked like a, like a little one uh, produced a broad swath of, of winds, not only in the sort of leading edge of the squall line, but back in that, in that circulation too. Um, and then probably the most famous one then that, you know, since there's all kinds of media and lots of people there was the 20, the June 2012 
system that went through the well started in um you know up close to chicago and then went all the way across indiana ohio um and and then and then even went across the, the appalachians and into the dc area and you know knocked out power across all of dc uh in the surrounding areas for a very long time um and so that phrase then kind of really came back into vogue i think with that system that that was a really really destructive and and impactful system and so now it seems like you know as you were noting the 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 media jumps on that term anytime there's a windstorm or or a forecast of of, of you know a, a squall line or, or things like that um but but that's sort of some of the some of the background i guess of where that that particular term comes from and and you know how, i guess how it's been used over time and, and or or maybe maybe misused uh over time that, that's a, a great um great backstory and definition and like you said, you know, and like we pointed out, it seems like every wind event now with storms are, are now derechos. But uh, hopefully now that you guys are, are listening and following along, there are certain criteria to, to what a derechio is. Uh, Russ, if you can, kind of give us a, a background. What is a derechio setup? Like uh, we just don't see derechios happen every day. We have to have particular uh, ingredients kind of come together for these systems. Yeah, so I think the 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 one that that often gets set up in in systems sort of like the um, the the uh, 2012 derecho and and many others is you is you get a big it's when the when the big ridge of high pressure kind of builds in over the continent in the summertime and so usually you got a big high over you know over the the, the south or the southeast um, and then it, and and so it's getting really hot and and humid underneath that high. And then it's just to the kind of on the on the fringe of that ridge, just to the north of that ridge, then where the flow, the jet stream is and the flow is stronger. And so you're pumping all that hot, moist air up from the south, but it's way too capped under the high to actually get any storms going. But once you get into that slightly cooler air to the north, um, then you've got just just, you know, huge instability. And now you've built up enough shear in that area such that that the. Uh, you know, once the once the storms get going, they they often pretty quickly organize into these lines and they move in that in that fast flow um, around the ridge. And and, you know, it's the sort of ring of fire pattern that people sometimes talk about where you get consecutive days of storms forming on the north side of that ridge and, and sort of rolling all the way around uh, the, uh, you know, um, uh, anticyclonically around the clockwise around the, uh, the upper level ridge. And so that, that at least in the kind of in the Midwest sort of areas is where those, those often, uh, the kind of scenario where those often show up, but they, they can occur in other places as well. Let me see if I've got, I think I've got a map here from, from a, uh, uh, somewhat recent paper that I'll see that, that has a nice, nice description of, um, the, uh, yeah, there we go. Of the uh, where these derechos occur. So this is by a, a paper by uh, Corey Guastini and Lance Bozart at University of Albany a couple of years ago, where they um, 
you know, did a climatology essentially of where these, these, they, they term progressive derechos, which are the ones we usually think about where you've got a, a you know, one, one squall line, one bow echo that that's producing most of the damage. And so you can see the hot spots kind of in this, you know, this region, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, um, but, you know, some down in, in the Southern Plains, some reaching down into the Southeast, every once in a while they're into the Carolinas, but this is kind of often with these systems, that's the, the tricky forecast is whether the system that gets going, you know, over, over Indiana or Kentucky will actually cross the mountains and, and make it over into uh, the Carolinas, which most of the time doesn't happen, but, but when it does happen can be, can be pretty serious. So real quick, I wanted to um, actually share my screen and uh, talk right. about bow echoes just a little bit. Uh, now we, we, you talk about the different kinds of signatures on radar. So, for our viewers that are that are watching, they, they hear us talk about hook echoes and bow echoes. Uh, tell us, we're talking about derechos right now, so this is predominantly a bow echo. Does this picture sort of correlate what you're talking about in that area? Yep, that's the that's the classic uh, picture there. The one thing with this is to note that it's you know each each uh, it's showing the line at different times along here, so it's you know it's not one massive uh, beast, but it's kind of that right that that curved shape leading edge of this you know of the of the line there that's moving off to the southeast is the yep so that's the that is the the, the june 2012 is about as about as classic as it gets right yeah that one st stood out the most so um i don't have any other questions about the ratios unless um anyone else does i know certain areas have seen them we we, we get that along undulating fronts Sometimes across the Mid-Atlantic and in the Southeast region, we don't see them so much down here as we as you do up uh, across the Midwest and parts of the Ohio Valley. Well, we get um, we get uh, derechos or at least um, you know bow echoes if they if they don't quite meet the definition of derechos uh, down in this part of the country, especially when we get into Northwest flow um, coming down into the Mid South. And one of the one of the trickiest forecasts here is those overnight uh mcs's or derechos that come out of the central to southern plains moving southeast and they cross arkansas and they always tend to get to this to the mississippi river about the time of minimum heating you know sunrise seven o'clock in the morning and you know the models typically have not done a real good job of is that going to hold together or is it going to fall apart and we just get some light rain throughout the morning hours or is it going to be um, something similar to what we called Hurricane Elvis several years ago, which was 100 mile an hour winds that caused all kinds of damage, you know, hundreds of thousands without power here in Memphis. It was a 7 a.m. arrival um, on a, a summer morning um, several years ago. And, you know, that's that's the worst case scenario. But more often than not, um, as they start moving out of the Ozarks, some of the higher terrain in, uh, in nor northwest Arkansas, as they move this direction uh, around that time of day, it, it you know, they start to kind of fall apart and, and we may get a little lightning and thunder, but generally it's uh, it's just a rain event. So real, real tricky uh, forecast problem. And I'm sure that's part of the research that you're that you're doing as well, Russ. Yeah. And that we had uh, so a few years ago, we did a we were part of a, a field project out in the plains called Pecan Plains Elevated and Convection at Night. And these are the sorts of questions that were one of the one of the goals of the project. And we actually sort of busted our own forecasts a bunch of times with with these big wind or what looked like they were going to be big wind events that we were going to measure in the project and and you know we still had there were still storms and and you know and and sort of isolated severe storms in some cases but yeah we had 
three or four events where, you know, SBC was going with very high probabilities of severe winds. We were totally on board with that forecast. And then for reasons that people are, you know, trying to figure out now, it, 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 there were storms, but they didn't, you know, they didn't get those, those 80 or 100 mile an hour winds down to the ground like some of the systems do, but, but on these days, for whatever reason, that didn't happen. So I think it's a, it is certainly a, a an active research area and a, and a big, uh, a big challenge because it, yeah, I mean, I think in many cases, the, like you're pointing out those early morning situations where it's pretty stable near the surface that can make a difference between whether the winds are, you know, there's strong winds in the system, but they're, they're only making it down to, to, you know, a thousand or 2000 feet above the surface rather than actually making it down to, to the ground where they're, where they're going to, to uh, produce the impacts. And, and maybe, I'm sorry. Ahead. Okay. Um, I don't know if we'll, maybe we'll get into this more a little bit later on, but since we're talking about the topic here, um, do you, how have, with, with the advent of some of these um, CAM models and, and, you know, the rapid refresh type of models, um, how, and it may be just in a generalized way, um, are, do they do a fairly decent job with this type of system as far as, you know, where and when they're going to blow up and, and how long they're going to last before they finally fall apart? Uh. I mean, certainly far better than was the case, you know, five or 10 years. I mean, sure. the, the forecasts you get from the cams are, are, are sort of world, worlds beyond what, what you, you know, the kind of guesses you'd be making with, with some of the previous generation of models. Um, but I think it's still a mixed bag in a lot of ways in terms of, of how well they do. I mean, one of the, one of the sort of, uh, you know, uh, golden cases or whatever was that Missouri super derecho of 2009, where these this was the early days of running these high resolution models at, at NCAR. And they produced essentially a perfect forecast of that system about a day in advance. Um, and, and so that, you know, that was like, wow, this, this is really possible to do this and get good forecasts. But there's plenty of other examples where where things are not so good, and I think that's still sort of where the the place where we are is there's there's you know some cases where it's unbelievable how good the models do, and then and then other days where uh, where the performance is not so great, and and I'm not sure that we can know all, you know that we know all that well yet to predict the you know which of those days the models are going to perform well and which ones they're not. Thanks. Uh, Russ, we have a viewer question. This is from Francis Tablino. I hope I pronounced your last name right, Francis. Uh, but she was wanting to know what what season are these most common in? What what season do we mostly see duratios? Yeah, in I mean, in that sort of core Midwest region, mostly summertime, June, July, August. Um, you know, Southern Plains would probably be, or the Southeast would would be a bit, probably a little earlier in the year there but but yeah often that you know that pattern builds in where it's getting pretty pretty it's 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 more of a summertime thing than a springtime thing um you know whereas tornadoes sort of peak in the that that springtime to early summer the derechos are are a bit more common in the in the sort of core summertime months all right we appreciate that let's uh let's kind of turn the gears just a little bit let's talk about mcs and mcb mm -hmm. systems um Tell us a little bit about those and how we can depict those maybe from what these ratios are. Yeah. So, so this, the, the terminology and everything here is often, uh, 
confusing even to us, I think in the, in the field in, you know, that are, that are in the, uh, in, in the meteorological field and, you know, even, even more so, um, for, for folks, uh, outside of the field, I will try to, uh, share a graphic here again, real quick. If that works is one that I have got from, uh, from one of my classes that, and, and so this is a, the, this, well, there's a few a few different um, examples here, and and you know there's a definition from the from the glossary of meteorology, but but I think the the takeaway here actually is summarized nicely in this uh, Venn diagram from uh, Markowski and Richardson's uh, Mesoscale textbook, um, where MCS is sort of the the broad catch-all terminology for for just about any you know, somewhat organized system of thunderstorms that, 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 you know, so it's, it's gotta be an organized system of storm much bigger than, than sort of an individual, you know, updraft and downdraft of a thunderstorm. It's, you're getting lots and lots of those together and it might form into a line shape. It might form into some kind of cluster. Um, it, it, lots of other, you know, possibilities there around that. But, but so MCS mesoscale convective system is kind of the, the overarching, uh, you know, that's the purple circle here that sort of is a, is a catch all for lots of lots and lots and lots of subtypes of, uh, other types of systems that people have, have classified. And, and some of, you know, in, in, this research area, it seems that, that we really like to come up with, try to come up with names for things or, or new acronyms or whatever else. So it, so it can often add to the confusion for, for people that aren't sort of, uh, you know, fully entrenched in that, um, in that area. But some of those subtypes that are well known, one is, is the mesoscale convective complex or MCC. And what that is, is, uh, a, 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 type of MCS that is essentially very large and very circular in, in character, especially as you'd look at it from satellite, that's how it was, they were first identified was from the, you know, some of the first infrared satellite images. And so it's a big, um, and I've got, uh, here is an actual example of one here from a, from a few years ago. So you've got, this is an infrared satellite image. So it's, you know, this big circular, um, thing that underneath it has lots of, you know, maybe one or more little lines of, of storms under there and they're producing this giant anvil. Um, and so that's one, you know, well-known and well-studied subtype. Those are common uh, in, 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 in the central U.S. for sure. You know, east of the Rockies is one of the, the main places where these happen, but also other parts of the world in, in Asia and in China, they're quite common in, um, in parts of Africa, in South America. So these are, these are observed uh, in lots of different places. So that is sort of at the, at the very, very organized, very, you know, large uh, scale of, of, of MCSs. Then there are um, squall lines, which fit into that, uh, into that sort of MCS definition as well. Those are, you know, as, as the example that, that Shea showed there is, you know, a, a line of storms um, that, that you see on radar or on satellite. Um, and then within that category uh, would be, would be a subcategory of those would be bow echoes where you have the line 
of storms that takes on this Boeing shape um, that you see here. Um, and, and often those are associated with these very strong winds and, and derechos. And then, you know, within this, we could, you know, people have sort of come up with lots of additional names and classifications over time for, for systems that produce heavy rainfall or systems that are organized or have a certain shape. Um, and, and, but, but, but that, that's kind of the, the, the overview is that, is that MCS is sort of a very broad general term for lots of these systems of organized thunderstorms. Um, but then, uh, then there's all these different subtypes that, that, that people have identified and studied and, and you see, you know, on, a, on a, any given day in the, in the spring or summer, you're probably likely to see one of these MCS or one or, or many of these MCSs uh, somewhere in in the country. Um, so they're they're very very common in the in the summertime, and they produce uh, a large fraction of the rainfall in the in the spring and summer across you know especially across the the central and eastern United States. Russ, I've got one more question, and then I'll open it up to our panelists. Um, We'll put our social scientist hat, social science hat on right now. How do you think uh, we as meteorologists, uh, maybe the uh, the media in general, how can we communicate better the threats, uh, particularly for a derecho, uh, and then the systems that we talked about? How can we, how can we communicate those threats in a in a better way for folks to understand and maybe. Like you were talking about earlier, a lot of people who associate wind damage it automatically has to be a tornado. Uh, how can we communicate that, you know, wind is wind, no matter if it's rotating or a straight line, it's going to do damage? Yeah, I think it, and I think, it, yeah, I think it's a big challenge right now because for probably for lots of reasons, it seems that people have become a bit desensitized to severe thunderstorm warnings and, and perhaps don't take them particularly seriously or, 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 you know, whether it's the hail or the wind, they, you know, it, it, it doesn't have that same, doesn't cause that same reaction in people as the, as a tornado warning. I mean, the, the sort of recent example of, you know, the really, really kind of devastating example of this was the, the duck boat incident in Missouri um, back in July um, where, you know, there was a severe thunderstorm warning in place, but, but, you know, did they get that warning and, and would it do anything about it in, um, in, you know, even if they got it, I think is, uh, these are, these are big questions. And I think that, um, you know, right. A lot of attention goes to tornadoes and, and rightfully so, but, but I think there's a lot of, uh, challenges around what, what we need to do with, with severe thunderstorms going forward. Cause that one, severe thunderstorm, you know, killed a, a very large number of people and, and, you know, often more than, 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 uh, you know, a lot of tornadoes do. And so those are, uh, I don't I don't have a good answer for that, I, I guess, but, um, I think, I hope it's something that we start thinking more, more seriously about is, 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 uh, how to, how, uh, if there's ways we can make the severe thunderstorm warning product or, or, you know, the way we do that, um, give that similar attention to, to what's being given to tornado, uh, improving tornado warnings. Now, I, I have a question about uh, MCVs, mesoscale convective vortex. Mm -hmm. And I've seen these travel from like Atlanta, Georgia, where a lot of mesolows develop. And so I, I've always been sort of confused as to what defines a mesolow versus a mesoscale 
convective vortex. Uh, and, and it's really impressive. It looks like a really tightly wound low pressure system that just spins right along. And I've, I've watched a couple of these go right just downslope all the way to the ocean. And then you got to watch for pop possible tropical development. Uh, but it's, it's really unique because we don't hear MCV very often. And when, when would we apply that to a system that we see? I, mean, I know here with the NSSL says a core of only three, 30 to 60 miles wide, but uh, is there other, any other criteria that could define it? Yeah, that, that's one where we probably don't have a very, you know, uh, uh, concrete definition in place but i mean what you you what you described was certainly certainly a good example of a of an mcv and yeah usually what happens is in these is you have you have a squall on mesoscale convective complexes some big organized uh, storm system that usually went and usually they form sort of as the system is winding down you know going towards the next morning or whatever and and it leaves behind this circulation that um that right it, they they can go on for 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 days and they they have a lot of connections in the way that they form with the way that tropical systems uh form obviously they don't have usually don't have that that source of warm water underneath like we we know about over the oceans for tropical systems um but they're they're warm core systems. They form sort of you know you showed that that the sort of bubbling stuff out over the uh, over the Atlantic at at the beginning you know out out over there and and it and it's not you know and that it takes a few days for those sorts of things to spin up into tropical systems. It's not too different over over the continent where you'll get one of these big convective systems. It leaves behind one of those circulations and then that circulation can go on the next day to be sort of a focus for for more storms and. And, and that can proceed for, for numerous days. There have been instances where one will form over land, like you said, and then move out over the ocean. And then you get a tropical system out over the, the Gulf Stream or something like that. So, yeah, so this the, the definition wise, uh, I don't know, it's, it's probably more one of those, you know, you know, where you, when you see it kind of things, because they, they pop out really nicely on, on satellite imagery in a lot of cases. Um, but uh, But yeah, that was the topic that I did most of my, my uh dissertation research on was looking at those that you know they'll form one day and, and then the next day they move over somewhere else and then and then storms form there and that is often a ripe situation for really heavy rainfall and, and flash floods and and kind of that um where they tend to seem to occur a lot is is that kind of corridor between like north texas across arkansas you know uh, tennessee kentucky kind of area um where where those will if they if they can hold together and interact with you know flow the moisture coming in off the gulf of mexico um you can get these you know these systems that that are really hard to forecast and they're not very big in area but then they'll just sit there and and dump you know eight or ten inches of rain in a, in a few hours right i think hurricane arthur 2014 is a good example of um an mcs over land i know the nhc circled the area days before we were watching it was like wow i mean this was a pretty intense uh, pretty good size mcs that that just slowly made its way over once it got over the atlantic dropped south along the gulf stream and then came back up yeah so, uh that, that's your that's your classic homegrown system right there really neat to see that area circled over land long you know, a day and a half before it made it to the ocean so i think uh chris has a question for you as well yeah, absolutely how's it going russ uh question i spent about five weeks of this spring out on the plains chasing storms mm -hmm. <laughs> so 
uh, this spring, obviously, there was a you know below normal tornado year for for the plains, and with that below normal tornado year, to me, it seems like it was a an above normal MCS year uh, because you had so much upscale growth with the storms so so quickly. Uh, I'm, what do you think might be the cause of that? I mean, is that anything to to you know look at going into next year? Is it just just your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a good question to be asking, and I'm not sure that 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 I or or maybe anybody has a, a good answer to that at this point because I think these are the, you know, these are the sorts of questions people want to know about going, you know, at, at sort of this seasonal scale, right? I mean, obviously, chasers, we kind of want to know about it there, but but in terms of you know preparing for an active above above average, below average, whatever, uh, you know, people want to be prepared for that. I don't, yeah, it it. Obviously, I mean, I, I think more more recently here, later, you know, in the in the middle of the summer, where we have we've had this, you know, the giant ridge set up over the western U.S. where it's been so hot, and then we get northwest flow over the over the the central part of the country. That's a that's a pretty good setup for you know for organized systems to to grow and develop. Um, but going back into the spring, that's when right you expect supercells you don't expect uh, or you expect the supercells to maybe grow up into mcs's but but we didn't get that to to happen very often this year so it's a yeah and and, you know i think there are some people that are starting to think about these more seasonal uh aspects of the of the you know severe weather or or you know and how it relates to storm structure but i'd say it's not something we we have much, uh, certainly not much uh, predictive skill in at this point, as as you're probably uh, you know well well acquainted with. When you know, you, you can't know even a couple weeks in advance when you should you know when you should take your uh, your chasing trip or whatever. Oh, absolutely. And uh, real quick before we uh, move on here, I want to share my screen here. And you said something a while ago that was really uh, that really caught me, and I had to go back through some of my pictures and look. You're talking about you know especially when you get the upscale growth into these. Co- you know, multi, you know, multi-cluster storms and stuff like that, where you get the huge anvils. And uh, this is from, uh, if you guys can see my screen here, June first, and uh, near Sargent, Nebraska. This is at three, three twenty in the afternoon, and you can see it's just a nice little cumulus. And then by four o'clock, uh, starting to get some more cumulus. I'm just sitting on the side of our road. Then by five o'clock, hey, we got a nice base there. And see, that's what you think of, you know, the prototypical supercell. You know, not that much precipitation. See the base. And then by 5.30, we've got this nice guy. Now you got a rotating base. But then this. Yeah. <laughs> you all, these, all these nice vertical, you know, updrafts going into one massive anvil. And when you said that, that just, that just caught me. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and then, of course, this storm uh, continued on. It went on to produce an EF1 tornado uh, right at dark uh, as it was basically a QLCS at that point. Right there's the. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it started to come down, but yeah, that that just caught me. Then you get those big, uh, nice big shelf clouds too, and you know if you're in, if it happens before dark and you see those uh, big lines coming through, which is not what we want to see if you're if you're trying to see tornadoes, but but certainly can uh, be be beautiful as well. That's right. (laughs) All right, Russ. I think we uh, I think we've gone through a bunch of the scientific questions that uh, maybe the panel has. Now, we cannot let you go tonight without asking you about your appearances on Jeopardy and uh, how that all turned out. I, I did a little research. I found out found out that you were 
one of the big winners on Tournament of Champions. Tell us about uh, meeting Alex Trebek and that experience that you had. Yeah, so it was it was super fun. Um, yeah, I first tried out in here in well in Denver here in two. I guess it was two thousand three um, when they came around doing auditions, and you know it was a show I had watched all growing up and. And I did like quiz bowl and stuff in, in high school and college and that kind of thing. So it was always, you know, something I had in the back of my mind, that'd be a cool thing to do, but it wasn't something I thought all that much about until, you know, they came here and, and I went and did the audition and then they called me out to be on the show. And, and I was very fortunate that I met um, a, a person here in, in Colorado who had been on the show uh, uh, previously and it's had built up basically a, a, a simulator with the buzzers and the kind of real life gameplay and all this kind of thing. And so we practiced, um, me and some friends, we went and, and practiced a lot before I went out to tape the show. So I felt really, you know, well prepared going in, but you never know what's going to happen when you get there. You don't know what, you know, what if the categories are going to be good or bad. And, and, you know, so just, you, you kind of just go in and you really just want to win one game. Um, and, but, but, you know, for two thirds of the people that doesn't, that doesn't even happen. And, and so I, yeah, was fortunate enough to win that, win the first game, which was a, was a close one. And then, um, then kind of went on a run for a few days and then it was enough to qualify for the tournament of champions. And, um, somehow I went through and, and, and won that thing. And then, um, which I assumed was kind of the end of all of it, but then, they did this tournament just a few years ago. It was the 30th anniversary of the show. They did this tournament called the Battle of the Decades, where they invited people back from all 30 years of the show. And so I got to go back and and uh, go back again and kind of meet people that I had, you know, had been that I had seen on TV and stuff, which was super cool. And I, I made it to the to the semifinals of that. And and what sort of the uh, the the uh, you know the the weird thing that happened in in that was I got a weather category in one of the games. Um, and, and this was one of the clues, which, you know, this was like right after we had been out in the field launching, uh, launching weather balloons. Uh, and so that was, that was pretty fun. I, when I saw the category come up, I was, I was uh, terrified because I knew that if I screwed something up in, in a weather category, I'd never live it down. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, they were, they were ones that I, that I could, you know, because often if it's something you know a lot about, then you way overthink that, that thing. But, um, but anyway, it worked. I think I got four out of the five there. So it worked out okay. And, and uh, so that was, that was a, a fun, uh, 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 yeah, it's just a super fun experience overall. The, the people at the show are great um, and, and, you know, make it a, make it a good experience. And yeah, I couldn't ask for, uh, you know, better, better opportunity to be able to do something like that. Is that, is that something you, you prepare for mentally or do you just remember, do you just have a knack for remembering a lot of things? I mean, I think you have to have that, but, but yeah, I studied quite a lot, you know, the, the things that come up on the show a lot, presidents and state capitals and, and then stuff that I knew almost nothing about like Shakespeare and, and mythology and stuff, at least to try and get some like basic level of literacy in, in, in some of those categories. So I, yeah, I did a lot of, you know, made a lot of flashcards and, and, and stuff like that. Um, but it, now in more recent years, there's some people who have, who have, you know, tried kind of, you know, tried to hack the game essentially where they, cause now the, almost the full record of every clue is on, jarchive.org and you can you can grab you know 
if you're good enough with your data analysis, you can go grab the full data set and people have, you know, tried to crunch the numbers about you know, where on the board does the daily double show up and which, how much should I bet in this scenario and all these kinds of things. So it, it you know, some people just go on just because it's going to be fun. And then some people take it super seriously and try to, you know, try to, to uh, you know, prepare as much as they can for it. Well, are you, would you, are you still uh, honed in on your skills? Would you take a, a Jeopardy question now? I, I can take one. I, I don't know what, what I'll do, but... <laughs> I just picked something. Um, okay, here we go for 2000. On October 19, 1936, this psychologist delivered a lecture, The Concept of the Collective Unconscious to the Abernethan Society at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. For, yeah, I want to say Freud, but or who is Freud, but I'm afraid that's not the right answer. Carl Jung. It was young, okay. Yeah, young. it's either Freud or uh, young. <laughs> I just pick something random out there, but I mean, yeah, I tell you what, I, I love watching Jeopardy, and uh, it's it's fascinating when people just pop those things off. You're like, wow, that's just that's impressive. Yeah, and it's pretty cool that it's one of these shows that's been around for you know thirty yeah. some years now, and it's basically still the same show that it was when it started, and people still watch it. Good stuff. Well, Russ, we really appreciate you being on with us tonight. And uh, I can say we've never had a Jeopardy champion on a <laughs> show that I know of. So uh, that's a first as well. If our followers uh, and uh, listeners to the podcast want to uh, follow your research that you guys are doing out at Colorado State, how can they do that? Um, well, I don't know. I guess, uh, you know, I don't keep my website as updated as I as I probably could, but I but certainly a lot of the stuff uh, is is there um, on which my sort of research website is is schumacher.atmos.colostate.edu. I've got I've got Twitter Russ underscore Schumacher. It's uh, again I sort of sometimes I I'm I'm not as active on it as probably as many people are on Twitter, but um, but you know feel free to follow. Certainly. Uh, try to try to post things there every now and then awesome well russ we really appreciate you being on with us tonight and uh, some great information that that we can uh, be able to take back and uh, we appreciate your time great happy happy to be able to do it thanks for having me yeah you're welcome no problem stick around if you want to we do a little segment called tweet of the week and uh this is where the panelists go around and uh something they've discovered on twitter throughout the week and uh, they like to share it. I know uh, James had his tweet. Uh, Jared, do you have that already dialed up, or do I need to give you a minute? Uh, give me a second. I'm going to dial <laughs> that tucker up for him. Okay. Does anybody else have a, a tweet to start with? Uh, I can, go okay, ahead, Chris. Go ahead, go ahead Chris. Uh, let's see here. Let me get a screen share rolling. <laughs> yeah, Chris, uh, well, we can put that that really cool shelf cloud you had up yeah, also a little bit. So. All right. Yeah, we'll do that. Uh, just as soon as I get done with this, uh, the NOAA satellites, and they had a tweet about the GLM lightning mapper from Go 16 across the Carolinas the other night, just uh, showing how much uh, you know intense lightning there was, especially across, I guess, the PD region and up, up coastal regions of South Carolina and North Carolina across the uh, Grand Strand. <clears throat> and I noticed that uh, Colorado State also has incorporated the uh, GLM into their uh, RAAMB slider. I, I can't remember the acronym. 
Sierra Rambi. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. Anybody else? Have yeah, I can go if you want. All right. Go ahead, Eric. All right. We referenced earlier the smoke trails that were going into the eastern U.S. And so uh, the Weather Service in Memphis uh, tweeted out how close that got to our area. And let me make sure that you guys can see that. So this is from uh, NWS Memphis um, a few days ago. And there is a, a kind of a streak, a light streak going across to uh, Eastern Missouri down in the Lower Ohio River, right basically over Nashville, and then into the Smoky Mountains, and that is uh, that's where the jet stream was a couple of days ago, um, bringing this the smoke down. And I, this was actually uh, smoke from wildfires in Canada, not the ones in California. But the jet stream had that nice little dip in it, uh, and you can see kind of how close it got to the Memphis area there. So pretty close, but a really interesting uh, pattern to be able to see that wrapping this time of year to see the jet stream dipping that low around that uh, trough up in the northeast too that's really cool like that's that's awesome right there good stuff uh let's see uh, jared i think you got james yeah there it is yeah yeah so, so james is off tonight he told us about two or three hours ago he was not going to be able to make it and this is why He's uh, watching the Charlotte Knights uh, play baseball tonight in downtown Charlotte, and it's a beautiful night out there. But I think the Knights are getting beat, so uh, it's James. It's James's fault. He's jinxed them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not looking good for the Knights, but yeah, so it goes. But many thanks to James for giving me a very easy control board to work tonight. So um, while we're here, I might as well just go. Um, this is a, I did find this on Twitter, but it is hosted on Instagram by kyle platt <laughs> and uh well let me just uh let me just start it up here i don't know if you're going to be able to hear it but uh but oh there's two david pains <laughs> there's two of them there's two of them double the pleasure double the pain and and at one one point during the video david payne tells the other david payne move out of the way <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, he, he, he gets him out of the way, doesn't you know, David? You gotta get, get get out of my way, man. It's it's kind of like movie multiplicity, um, it, which it is. You know, if you've ever seen that, you know how uh, crazy that movie can be with uh, Michael Keaton uh, decidedly not being Batman. Uh, so that that was a lot of fun. Yes, yes, I uh, I, I laughed so hard that I had a few tears coming to my eyes watching that last night. So. Yeah. All right, Shay, I know you've got one pulled up. Go ahead. All right. This came from Bill Walsh. And let's see. I'm trying to see. Rusty Streetman actually provided this video feed. This is all the palms uh, from Monday morning. We had uh, a really nice line of storms just off the coastline, really intense cumuliform storms. And uh, this, is a, this is a rather, you know, fairly large water spout for just, just off the beach at Isle of Palms. We, we typically don't get them this close. They're usually on the island tips where the coastal breaks are, where you have the very light winds and, and diversity in the directions. Uh, these really line up along the coast. Uh, saw them early on, went ahead and put the warnings out to everybody that uh, to keep an eye on the maritime environment, especially a lot of the uh, nearshore, inshore fishermen. But they're, they're always so helpful in getting pictures of these things as well. They're pretty neat uh, water spout for, for us anyways. When we get it, this is that time of the year we get them fairly yeah, I mean, I'd say regularly. They're they're not uh, unheard of, but ones that big, that close to the beach, we don't usually see them like that. So, uh, you know, Edisto, maybe a little further south, Edisto, Hilton Head. Sometimes they get a little close to, close to the beach there. Shay, do you know, did that one come ashore or did it 
Still. No, it did not. It did not come ashore. No, no. Uh, we we that rarely ever happens here. Um, and there may be some on some of the barrier islands in the north around Bulls Bay. Uh, some of those some of those spots up there may see some land falling water spouts, but we wouldn't know because no one's there. It's kind of like you know, <laughs> if a tree falls in the woods, and no one's there to hear it. Does it? Did it really fall? All right, right, all right. Yeah, I saw that video earlier this week and thought that was fascinating. Well, and here's my tweeted week. It also deals with the South Carolina coast. And uh, I want to uh, congratulate our good buddy, Ed Piotrowski. He was nominated and won the uh, best weather caster of the year for the state of South Carolina from uh, WPDE in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So uh, Ed Piotrowski won the uh, uh, Weathercaster of the Year Award for the state of South Carolina. So congratulations, Ed. And uh, we we uh, congratulated him on Twitter, and he said, hey, when are you going to have us have me back on the show? So uh, we're going to be working, uh, hopefully, to get Ed on, hopefully, in the uh, next couple of months. So uh, big congratulations from all of us here uh, to Ed Piotrowski. He's a good guy. Shay, I know you've been able to interact with him some. He's, oh, yeah, uh, he's yeah. We talked talk a good bit. Yeah, we sure do. In fact, uh, Rob Fowler is going to be coming on next month with us as well. Maybe we can have them together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We can have a fun show with those two. That'll be a great show. Speaking of shows, let's uh, look at our schedule for uh, the next couple of weeks. Next week, uh, we have uh, Mark Willis on from Surfline. Uh, he's going to be talking to us. We're actually going to start to show about 15 minutes early uh, next week. At 8 o'clock, we're going to have Candace Jordan on. She is um, um, doing uh, heading up the uh, weatherproof event that myself and Shay and Chris and uh, James will be attending next Saturday afternoon at the Schneel Museum in Gastonia. Uh, come out and, uh, and see us. We'd love to, uh, to, to chat with you guys. But uh, Candace is going to be joining us uh, at 8 o'clock next week to talk to us about the weatherproof event. And then we'll have Mark jump on afterwards. And then on the uh, 29th, we're going to be talking to Chris Ray and Wesley Shaw with My Coast. They uh, kind of document uh, the tides throughout the uh, East Coast and the Gulf Coast. And they're going to talk to us about their program. And then on September 5th, we're going to be talking about topographical influences with hurricanes with Dr. Jan DeHart, another Colorado State University uh, professor there. So, uh, Russ, we're bringing a lot of Colorado State folks on you and uh, Phil and, and Jan. So, yeah, happy, happy to have you guys. So, uh, for all of us here at the Carolina Weather Group, please go check out um, the Schneel Museum uh, website. Uh, find out about Weatherproof. We'd love to see you there. Also, uh, the Mid-Atlantic uh, uh, ChaserCon taking place October 27th in Richmond, Virginia. You can uh, go on Google and Google that up and look at the um, look at the lineup there. So we'd love to see you up there as well. So uh, for everyone here at the Carolina Weather Group, we hope you have a great rest of the week. And as we close out, I'm going to let Chris Jackson pull up his shelf cloud that he got uh, just a couple of weeks ago. We were kind of talking about shelfies. <laughs> and look at this beauty right here. This is a great way to uh, close out the show. Chris, I'll let you – uh, talk to us about it and close us out. Oh, no, it, it was it was just crazy because the, the storm wasn't even severe warned, but uh, you know I guess it just worked out to where it produced a beautiful shelf cloud right for uh, sunset. I think this is on August third, and this is right over the Columbia Metro Airport. Uh, so we got a nice clear view to the horizon here, and uh, was able to get a nice picture of it. One of the best looking shelf clouds I've ever seen in my life. That is a beauty right there. That reminds me of something you'd see in Clearwater, Florida. <laughs> That's gorgeous oh, yeah. how it just lines up. And that's like the best feeling here too. And it's hot and humid. Oh yeah. And you can go over you at the beach 
you have all your gears packed up. You don't have any kites out to blow away into the ocean because you know that that powerful offshore wind is getting ready to come in. With that temperature drop at 20 degrees, that cool air, as long as it's not too much lightning, not or not not any lightning, let's say any lightning. That's right. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a, it feels great. Absolutely. And be- be- I'm sorry, before we close tonight, we wanted to wish Eric a um, – it's not really a farewell, is it, Eric? You're going to be joining us um, from show to show, but we're just – not going to be able to uh, have you on every night as you kind of get ready for uh, the new fall and the school year with your kiddos. So uh, we want to say we appreciated uh, your commitment this summer and we look forward to having you on later on down the road. Thanks a bunch. Yeah, it's hard to believe that a uh, year has gone by since I uh, started on the panel, but it has. And uh, uh, yeah, appreciate the opportunity to do so. I interviewed some great guests, learned an awful lot. And that's the best part of it is uh, is learning from uh, everybody that comes on and, and getting to meet fabulous folks like you. So I appreciate that. And I look forward to guesting every once in a while. Yeah. So Eric's not gone forever, but uh, he is going to be joining us throughout the uh, the rest of the year on some uh periodically uh on some shows so eric we wish the best to you and look forward to uh having you back i think you've already penciled in a few dates haven't you yeah looking forward to uh <laughs> coming on to talk to rick smith here in a few weeks so definitely so well we appreciate that eric have a uh, a great weekend and everyone else we hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you back here next wednesday night for another sh- uh, episode of carolina weather talk to you then <laughs>